Would you all pray with me? Lord, we are grateful that we can gather even in weeks like these to hear your word preached, to hear the scriptures read, to receive the sacrament, and to turn to you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Good morning. Well, I was told some years ago by a mentor that when uh, someone is crying, you stop the meeting. Pastoral advice. When things are not business as usual, you don't do business as usual. And I think today, this week, uh, things are, are not exactly business as usual. Fears of a, a virus, a devastating tornado. Uh, it's been one heck of a week to be in Nashville. Am I right? So I just want to acknowledge that from the start. And I will go into that um, in this sermon. But I do want to, to just tell you, you know, the task of the preacher is to turn to the scriptures and to see what God has for us in each new day. And so I hope that you'll, you'll trust me in turning to the scriptures to hear what God might have for us, even with a crazy and um, confusing week. But <clears throat> before we actually turn to this story of Nicodemus, I, I'd like to just pose a question to you. When you think about your life, all of its movements, the kind of sequence of events, how do you think about it? Do you think about it as uh, a kind of progression, maybe like an upward movement? My life was kind of lousy in Ohio. Then we moved to Florida, and now it's all great. I used to have a job that was so unfulfilling, and now I've taken the CEO position, and I've made it. Maybe that's sort of how you think about it. Maybe you think about it in terms of family uh, additions. My life was so good, and then I had a kid, and now it's so crazy. (laughs) I know this one from experience. Maybe it's actually homeownerships. Oh, we used to live in that dinky apartment on 4th Street, and now we have this house. It's wonderful. I would bet there are also some of you here who think of your life not in terms of upward movement, but maybe a spiraling out of control, sort of a random assortment of occurrences. You can't pull them all together. They're they're challenging to make sense of. Maybe you, even in a week like this, are thinking, there is no narrative swing to this at all. But I would pose to us today that there is a logic to the sequence of your life if you look through the eyes of faith. But it's a challenge. And I think with the help of technology and social media, I'm not trying to make a whipping horse out of those things, but they do indeed encourage us and indeed make it capable for us to sort of construct our own narratives about our lives. We can memorialize particular moments You know, this vacation that we took, this career acquisition or this graduation party, this group of friends. And then we, so we highlight those things that add meaning to our lives. And then we kind of edit out those things uh, that don't fit. That broken friendship, this moment of relapse, those words that I wish I had never said, this moment when the relationship was actually finally over. Those don't make it on your Instagram feed, do they? 
We selectively cater and curate a sort of narrative theme in our lives. And even if we don't do that, there are some tropes that we certainly fixate on. I would gather uh, you, you and I both do. Things like adventurous, or warm, fun-loving, family man, that sort of thing. But again, our gospel reading, reading today gives us something else. It gives us the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is one who sought out Jesus fully confident in his ability to discern who Jesus was only to find out later that the Son of God was actually discerning him from the very start. So you see, even when we turn to Nicodemus, we see that our lives don't hang together by our own creative wills. They don't expand out into some sort of cosmic chaos, but they take on the very shape of God's pursuit of his beloved. That is the story of your life. If you don't like it, you will. And I don't mean this in some cheap anodyne plea. I'm not trying to say that your story is interesting or nice. It may not be. But this has been a fundamental Christian conviction from the very start, from at least St. Augustine, that time itself is given is God's gracious gift to you. And it is given for one specific purpose— to draw you to himself. That's what time is. That's what your life is and is about. It is the story of God seeking you through Christ Jesus. And again, I'm not saying that this is easy for us to believe. It has always been a challenge. I just started teaching a Sunday school course last week on the seven capital sins or deadly sins. I was struck in sort of digging into this material to find out that uh, there's been some, some change and some, some shifts in the, the list of the seven. There have been eight, and then they've swapped out this for that and so on. But one of the ones that I was, that I was sort of struck by, it's no longer in the, the list that we typically use, is that there was a forgotten one, uh, sadness. Sadness was one of the seven deadly sins. The reason that it was one of those sins is because it didn't, well, pause, it didn't mean sadness is in a conditional sadness, like if you have an event in your life that's actually tragic. That, that's, grieving is good. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about that condition, that uh, deep-seated, rooted disposition of the heart that looks more like melancholy and despair. That was the sin. And that was a sin because it meant denying that God is actually God. It meant living into a, what's really a kind of disdain for your life. A disdain for the things that you've been given by God. It meant, that, it, it meant receiving something that is meant as a gift, pushing it away. Too good for that. It was actually a kind of disbelief. That the one who created us gives us life, has is, is given meaning to our lives it's a, it's a despair. It's a, it's a rejection of that great gift. And this is something Paul is convinced about. 1 Corinthians 6, famous quote, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Paul here clearly means that you were bought by, you were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You were, you were paid for. But he also means that your very life was given to you by God so that he can pursue you. 
And we see again this at work in the life of Nicodemus. The Gospel of John tells us that Nicodemus was uh, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a, a ruling member of the Pharisees. He was an important man. He was an expert, a leader in his community. And as such, he came to Jesus at night. And he did that because Jesus is not, uh, Jesus does not have credentials. Jesus was not born in the right town. Jesus was not impressive in the same way that Nicodemus was. And so I think there's a sense of shame in his coming to Jesus. He comes under the veil of night. No one can see him. But nonetheless, he knows that Jesus has, has spoken some things and done some things that he cannot put out of his mind. He's performed miracles. He's healed some people. And so he has to come see what's going on. He has to interrogate. But what happens is he meets with Jesus, and if you read this, you've heard it. You see that as soon as he attempts to, 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 to begin conversation with Nicodemus, that the position of power gets switched. It's not actually that Nicodemus begins interrogating Jesus, but quickly when the conversation begins, it becomes Jesus interrogating Nicodemus. Jesus says, verses three to five, you, you came to me because you saw power in my healings and in my miracles, but you really can't see it all. You thought that you came here to find out about a person who's, who's done acts of of incredible witness. But you don't get it. You don't understand. Verses five, he says, you have to be born again to see what I'm really doing, to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, of course, doesn't fully understand. And and Jesus even tells him why he doesn't understand. He says, you have to be baptized. You must believe in order to truly see You must be moved by the Holy Spirit. Your heart must be converted to see me. Nicodemus still doesn't understand. How can one who has already been born be born again? Nicodemus has been raised a Jew. He's observant of the law. He's obedient. But he has not been moved by the Spirit quite yet. And the text is clear in verse 16, famous quote that faith in Jesus is a requirement for seeing who he is and what he does. So oddly enough, this episode ends abruptly. It's over, and then we don't see Nicodemus again until John 7. And this, fra- this period, I think, is a sort of transition swing. Uh, Nicodemus is in the council of the Sanhedrin. They're trying to, to figure out what to do with Jesus, who is a threat to them. And uh, they have decided that they will uh, condemn him. They've They've laid their cards on the table. And Nicodemus says, no, no, wait. We can't do that just yet. We actually have to try someone before we can condemn them. The scene's over. I think, though, that we begin to see that there is a story beginning to take shape in the life of Nicodemus. And then we jump all the way to the end of the gospel. I think this is where we see, finally, where Nicodemus stands on an ultimate level. Jesus has died was crucified. Nicodemus is presumably there to see it. And then there is the body to deal with. And so he does show up. Nicodemus volunteers himself to the task, and he does so in this curious way. The text tells us that he brings this extravagant amount of spices and linens. Also tells us that he placed Jesus 
in a tomb. None of these things are normal for, for, the, for the Jewish people at this time. The amount that's listed in the text is, is beyond extravagant. It's almost absurd. And it's absurdly expensive. The tomb that they picked for Jesus as well is expensive. It's not something that a common person would have been buried in, which Jesus is. And so you see in these details that the burial that Nicodemus gives Jesus is not just one of an important teacher of Israel. It's not even one for a prophet. It's actually the burial for royalty. It's the burial for a king. And I think that this detail betrays exactly how Nicodemus feels about Jesus. He's finally understood. Jesus is not just an interesting rabbi He is not a prophetic figure. He is not just a revolutionary, but he's the king of the Jews, just as they suspected. He is the promised Messiah. And I guarantee you when Nicodemus looks back on his life, on the sequence of his events, his interactions with Jesus, he will see what we see. Not that he was pursuing Jesus, but that Jesus was pursuing him, slowly converting his heart to believe. That is the story of Nicodemus. It's your story. I think it's also the story of every human figure in scripture. Just think about it. Abraham leaves his homeland to follow God, but fails to love his wife well. Jacob is born under the promise of God, but must be forcibly reunited with his estranged brother. Moses turns to the burning bush, but he has to be convinced of God's faithfulness to lead him. David orchestrates this murder only to repent under the prophet Nathan. And Nicodemus, finally, the esteemed scholar and leader of Israel, pursues Jesus at night only to be told that he knows nothing. See, we are all being converted by the one who has converted his heart completely, utterly, and eternally to God, Jesus Christ himself. And the whole of your life when you turn to him can conform to this pursuit, the one who has made you and given you life itself. And I think this is the truth that we all need to hear in Lent. Because as you reflect on your life, on your struggles, on your sins, on your frustrations, on the hopes that you you have that might not uh, be working out, do not forget this inner logic to your life. Don't forget the under... Uh, underswing of the story. Don't forget the purpose. The coherence to the narrative of your life, to the sequence of your days, is God's pursuit of you in Christ Jesus. And you must learn to see it. It's the story of Nicodemus. It's the story of you and me. It's the story of all who belong to God. Now, I realize that this is not something easy to believe in weeks like this. I think most of our hearts are sort of fixated probably on those who have lost homes, uh, who've lost their lives. Lots of us are scared, maybe we're anxious. Viruses, what will happen in Nashville? But I would encourage you, those of you who are anxious, to do as Nicodemus probably did, which is look to the cross. Nicodemus, of course, would not have known what was going on in the cross at this moment. He didn't even know what was fully happening as he uh, uh, embalms Jesus himself. But he trusted him. 
And as those of us who know what happens at the end of the story, we have the benefit of seeing just the way tragedy in some mysterious fashion conforms to God's pursuit of his beloved. Isn't that what the cross is? The most tragic of all events that somehow gets subverted into God's own purpose. So reflect on the cross. Now, if you do know the story of your life as it is given by God, if you know the way he's pursued you, if you know that your life has this sequence that God has has laid out for you, then I would encourage you to think of these next few weeks as a great privilege to take on the task that God has done in you, which is to pursue others in the face of fear and tragedy. Be the ones who reveal the pursuit of God. Be the person who someone thinks about when they turn back on their life and see that God was in fact seeking them. Be the ones who live their lives as if they're not their own. In closing, I'll use an illustration that I may have used here before, in fact, but it's too perfect to, to resist. I had this friend uh, some years ago who was a Jesuit priest and his training involved being in, um, in Jamaica uh, for a year. And the, the task that he had was to go find uh, the, the elderly poor um, in dumpsters, trash heaps, and gutters and alleys. Because in Jamaica, there is a, um, there's a custom that when, you know, a, a, a burial takes place, it must be extravagant and expensive. And so some elderly who are poor will, will try to um, save their family's resources, and so they'll, they'll go and die alone somewhere as to not weigh down their, their, their family. So this friend of mine, Matt, would go and wander around the back alleys and dumpsters of Kingston, pulling elderly dying people out of garbage taking them to uh, his, his home and taking care of them until they died. How in the world does someone do that? I'll tell you how. The way that you can do something like that is by knowing that your life is not your own, but it's God's given to you. And even more, it's knowing that your life can become a reflection of that great gift that your very decisions and actions and engagements with others can actually be the thing that someone turns to and says, oh my gosh, my life did have a story all along. It wasn't a spiraling out of control. It wasn't the story of progress. It was the story of being pursued by the one who is seeking out his beloved. I pray that we can be those people in these weeks and days to come who despite all of the anxieties, despite all of our worries, despite all of our sorrow, can nonetheless receive our lives as a gift and go to pursue those who need to be shown that they are pursued. I pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.